Hello everyone and welcome to A Biological Revolution. I'm Jeff McFadden. The Biological Revolution is a, a plan, a complete and consistent plan, to uh, halt and reverse the effects of global warming on planet Earth. It is uh, radically different from the normal uh, plans, but I believe it to be the only one that would actually work. I had a revelation just a couple days ago. It doesn't cause me to change my mind about any of the things that I've said so far in my podcast, but it showed me the uh, what I was missing. Uh, I still believe that we need a biological revolution, and I believe that we can uh, make a comfortable life for all seven plus billion of us here on planet Earth if we do it in that fashion. Um, but what I found out from uh, Mark Shepard, who is a uh, permaculture, well, he's not exactly a permaculture farmer. He started out a permaculture farmer, but then the word permaculture kind of became a, a, uh, a buzzword, and, and he didn't want to be in the buzzword business. So, so he's not exactly a permaculturist, but what he is, is he's a, he's a, a biological farmer. He has discovered, he's written a wonderful book called Restoration Agriculture, um, and he's proven everything that he says by living it on the land, and, and it works. It's there, it's real, and it works. And what he has done is he has taken the ecosystem where he is, the biome where, where he is, he has observed what it wants to grow, and he has said, okay, grow those things, and in particular of those things, grow all these ones that we can eat. And he, is, he has, by working with nature, working with biology, working with the natural inclinations of the piece of earth he occupies, he has taken a 105-acre farm and turned it into a little slice of heaven on earth that produces uh, his livelihood in farm products. And what he has discovered is that our error is annual crops. And he's not the first person to discover that, and he doesn't claim to be. But what he has done is two things. One is he has uh, proven it on earth. He has made it happen. He's supporting himself. He's supporting his family. He's healing the ground. He's building topsoil. He's uh, reducing water runoff. He's doing away with erosion. And he's pr providing... Uh, foodstuffs, not snacks and not nibbles and not a few greens. He's providing uh, carbohydrates, fats, oils, and protein enough to feed uh, a society of people. Uh, his, his basic contention is that it's not a farm if it doesn't produce staple foods, carbohydrates, uh, proteins, and fats enough to support society that that you know places like mine with little gardens on them are nice and they're useful and they're beneficial but they're not farms and i've always agreed with this 
I'm not a farmer. I'm a small holder, and I do what I do on my small holding in the hopes of making things better. But I've been largely at loose ends in many ways, and it's because I hadn't formed the realizations that Mark Shepard has formed, and I hadn't, and he's not the only one. He's the one that was introduced to me, a, a uh, friend of mine on Twitter, a fellow who goes by the by the uh, Twitter handle of at Build Soil, uh, posted a link to one of Mark Shepard's videos uh, where he was uh, giving a lecture about uh, his biological farming, his permanent agriculture, which it's permanent because it works with the land. It takes the biome that he lives in, which is, which is, uh, uh, Oak Savannah, which is the, also the biome that I live in, uh, we're not neighbors. It's a huge biome that covers a big chunk of the of the middle of North America and down into Central and South America, and I'm I'm in it in that same long stripe that he's in. Um, but you can take the same concepts that I've been expressing. Uh, and put them in the most basic place where humans can possibly be found, which is in feeding ourselves. If we can't feed ourselves, there's not much else we can do. And Shepard has done extensive, uh, in a way it's research, in a way it's not. He's done extensive collection of, of historic fact and historic pictures to show the ways in which we have been destroying the planet we live on ever since we invented annual agriculture. All these grains that we live on, they're all annual grasses. Now, I've mentioned this. I wasn't totally unaware of what he knows. What I was is I had failed to put it together into... I'm interested in the systemic nature of everything, and I had failed to see how <clears throat> a food system based on annual foods is is just systemically unsustainable. Uh, as Shepard says, the very first thing you do before you create an annual uh, crop is you kill a healthy ecosystem. And Ecosystems are made up of perennials. Annuals have a purpose in the ecosystem. When an ecosystem is badly disturbed, the very first thing to pop up in that ecosystem is annuals. And it's like growing a scab on a wound. The first thing you do if you hurt yourself is, is it scabs over. And that's to keep your, your body from leaking out onto the ground, okay? The scab's like a cork. It plugs up the hole. And that's what annual grasses do. They plug up the hole. And in a, in a healthy, properly operating savanna ecosystem, a, a, a periodic event is that the big grazers of your ecosystem come through your particular piece of it and they just eat all the grass, and they stomp it all into mud, and they shit all over everything, and they tear up everything, and they move on. And they are, that is a positive event. 
if you keep it up forever, it's death. But if they just do it a little while, it's this positive event. It causes this bloom. The first thing that happens is the scab over. The, the annual grasses grow, and they, f because annuals, survival strategy is make lots and lots of hard seeds that will still be here the next time the grazers come through and we can grow again then and then that'll be our turn so humans can take the the seeds of the annuals and and eat them and make beer out of them and uh make whiskey out of them and i mean there's anything you can make beer and whiskey out of can't be all bad but the problem is we keep setting it we keep destroying the healing process, so we can plant more annuals. In a properly functioning ecosystem, the grazers go through, they tear up the, the surface, the annuals pop up, they form a scab over the surface, and they get green, and they capture solar energy, and they make uh, life, and they put life in the soil, ad additional life, because this is living soil, that I'm talking about since it was already a functioning savanna or a functioning biome. Um, and then the, the perennials that live in the same system, they weren't killed when the, when the grazers came through. They were just knocked down and, and they kind of got the, the week off with pay. And while they were resting, the annuals grew up and they did their thing. And then the perennials come back. And the the grasses come back, and the and the trees grow back, and everything that went wrong gets gets well again, and it's all a healing process. You know, if you if you fall down on the highway and and skin hide off your arm, first thing it does is scab over, and and then after a while, the scab flakes off, and and there's good skin under that, and and then the skin heals up, and the hair grows back, and and bingo, you're all fixed. That's how. That's what annuals are for. Annuals are the scab, and they're important in their place. But what we've done is we've created this entire culture where all of our food comes from annuals, and even our grazers. Instead of letting our grazers eat grass, which they're evolved to do, and which the grass has evolved to do, we put them in little pens and we feed them annual grains. And and we give them lots of antibiotics and lots of, of growth hormones and lots of all this crazy stuff because they really didn't evolve to eat annual grains. You know, a, a cow doesn't have all those stomachs, so you can shovel in annual grains that, that uh, just ferment away in, a, you know, in, the, in the top stomach. So a cow's supposed to eat grass, and it's supposed to eat perennial grass. And... If if a cow eats perennial grass and then a person eats the cow, the fat in the cow is a healthier fat than if somebody boxes that cow up and feeds it corn. Everything, the, the world works perfectly for until, we've been here somewhere between 150,000 and a quarter of a million years. And when I say we... I mean homo sapiens, us, people that you could just take home, scrub up, give a haircut to, take to church on Sunday, and nobody would even notice them. They're just us, just people just like us. And for almost all that 
time for for at least a hundred and twenty thousand years, a hundred and thirty thousand years, we just wandered around the world and ate from it. We picked the nuts off the trees. We we took a stick and we dug up a, a the roots from under that vine. We picked off the grapes and we ate them. And we picked off the and we just wandered around and ate. And and, and as shepherd says, it's the only. It's the oldest system of of civilization of feeding ourselves on earth and it's never collapsed and in the places where we haven't forced them to stop people are still living that way and have been living that way literally ever since homo sapiens came from africa into wherever that particular spot where they still are is and it works you can just wander around and gather and eat but we've decided that we want to live in fixed places or semi-fixed places, and we want to have things which are known as civilization. We want to have art. We want to have music. We want to have literature. We want to have discussions of complex ideas. These things are all good. Humanity has, has made much of value with our, our cleverness. But the whole time since 10,000 to 6,000 years ago, however far back it was, this thing we call the agricultural revolution was the uh, annual crop revolution. It was the annual grasses revolution. And just like I told you in an earlier episode that the uh, uh, what we call the industrial revolution was really the heat engine revolution that humankind has always had industries and and before the heat engine we had numerous uh industries we had people were building those those long Kentucky rifles to go hunting with and those were works of art and they were works of industry and they were works of craft and we could still have all the finest of what we are without these heat engines and but that's only half the story the other half the story is we have to quit plowing the land we have to quit turning over the living ecosystems we have to quit simplifying i talked in another i don't think i ever got that one published never mind cancel that we we have simplified the earth by killing off almost everything except these few plants that we like, you know, corn and wheat and rice and a few kinds of beans. And they're all annuals. They grow in a flash. We harvest all their big seeds that, that what the annuals do best is make seeds. So we harvest all those seeds and then we leave that ground laid dead to the open sky and right now as it's early spring here in in northwest missouri and the the farmers down in the bottoms are out with their giant tractors that are that are track vehicles that look like rubber tired bulldo or rubber track bulldozers and they're pulling their huge implements across the soil and tearing ripping the the surface of the soil to shreds injecting it with 
anhydrous ammonia that kills anything it comes in contact with and calling it fertilizer. And all of these things that they're doing are making the ground poorer and making the earth poorer. They're killing off the species we need. They're killing off everything that takes carbon out of the atmosphere. And they're taking all the carbon that's already in the soil and turning it into the atmosphere. There is, and I, so far in, in these episodes, in my podcast, I have associated that with heat engine agriculture. And, and I have said, rightly enough, that when we did all this with horses, mules, and donkeys, we weren't nearly as destructive. And that's a fact. That is true. But Mark Shepard says that less bad is not good. And that's a more important fact. When we were doing it with horses, mules, and donkeys, we were killing everything. We just weren't killing it in as large a scale as rapidly. And by virtue of the fact that we've invented machinery that lets us kill it, kill our only earth on a much larger scale more rapidly, but we can get more and more and more of this annual grain to, to feed ourselves and, and, and we're, we're fat and we're sick and we're diabetes is an epidemic and and drug addiction is an epidemic and murder is an epidemic we're not a very happy people i don't care what pinker says we are not happy people we're not acting like happy people and most of us live most of the time among what is commonly called ugliness. And if you want to see beauty, you look at pictures of life. If you look through a what, what one thinks of as a beautiful neighborhood in a city, and that will be a neighborhood that's filled with life. There will be lots of trees and lots of shrubs and lots of grass, or uh, blooming flowering plants and some grass and and humans will have their dwellings mostly of which will be you know mcmansions but nevertheless the dwellings will be will be surrounded and 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 embraced by this uh uh living beauty and you have to pay extra to live someplace where it's pretty because after we kill everything then you can you can live in those neighborhoods it's less expensive so the people who kill the world we live on do not themselves choose to live in dead world they choose to go live in pretty neighborhoods with big mansions and and pretty plants and let us have the dead part shepherd and i uh have never met and I've never talked with him and I've only listened to a few of his presentations. So I can't tell you a whole lot of what he says. And I've read about, I don't know, the first quarter or less of his book. I can tell you that, that I am very impressed with this man's wisdom, 
I'm very impressed with what he has done. If you want to look at a person's, if you can look at a person's work, and that person's work is of beauty and of health and of nourishment, and he lives on a place on earth that is itself healthy and well, and that appeals to the eye because it's beautiful with all its life, you can pretty much bet that that person has many good characteristics. And so everything that I know for sure about Mark Shepard, I admire highly. And But he comes back often to one point, which I suspect we would disagree on, um, but I'm not sure because I've never had the opportunity to discuss it with him. But he makes a point in his presentations of praising agricultural machinery. He makes a point of telling you that if you ate today, you ate from a machine. And, of course, he's right. You know, and, um, and I'm not sure from what I've heard him say so far what his what triggered this this view in him uh but it could be people like me um he speaks of of growing his own fuel of being an an oil he's in, he's in an oil cartel except their oil is sunflower oil and they grow the sunflowers and they and they harvest the seeds and they press them and they have converted their vehicles to run on uh, vegetable oil. And this is all very good, and I admire it highly. I suspect that my opposition to the heat engine broadly is probably not something that he would find agreeable. But to me, from, from my view of it, uh, the heat engine is does not fit in his system. It's an aberration in his system that uh, he has has made peace with, and I suspect that he, like most people in today's world, is of the opinion that one cannot have machinery and one cannot have technology unless one has heat engines and high-speed, high-energy uh, technology. I don't know that. Like I said, this is all, I've just barely, I've just barely found out that this man exists. I've just barely cracked the surface of his teachings and I'm in awe of his wisdom. But I still believe that heat engine technology requires a faster speed and a larger scale and that his point would be that only relatively large scale farms can provide staple foods uh, carbohydrates, fats and protein and I uh, I understand where he's coming from, and, and yet I would point out that in most of the world, 
the most common farm size is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven and a half to ten acres, and that most of the farms in the world are powered uh, by donkeys, and that those farms do in fact provide uh, carbohydrates, uh, fats and oils, and protein, and that they provide it not at a subsistence level, but at a commercial level. And that if those farms had what Mark Shepard has, which is to say the wisdom to do restoration farming on those 10-acre plots, I believe that those farms could be very much genuine farms which provide food for societies and not just not just salad but food shepherd points out that that he goes to to, to sustainable farming things he's he's uh, obviously a, a much uh desired public speaker. Everything I've seen of him so far has been in public presentations that he's done. And uh, he points out, you know, that, that they, they have this, 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 uh, this meeting and this everybody talks about how good permaculture is and how we won't need farms anymore and, and uh, because everybody can grow all their food in their yard. And then they all sit down to a meal of... of uh, of rice and beans, or a meal of of uh, of uh, some kind of of uh, annual based agricultural, large scale carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, and he's absolutely right. We do, and yet his system, his hundred and five acres or hundred and four, whatever it is, it's right in there just over 100, um, that he is able to manage with his machinery could be four 25-acre farms or 10 10-acre farms all managed in exactly the same way that he manages his and could be done without the heat engines. And I don't think there would be any need for there to be any loss of productivity. He talks uh, accurately enough about the the uh, relative brutality of, of the farm labor in America. That, you know, the people who pick our apples are a lot worse off than, than the the apples in South Africa, which are machine harvested. Could we invent a machine apple picker that was pulled by four donkeys? I don't know, but I bet we could. Because the longer we used animals, the smarter we got. And right now, today, you can find a lot of very clever, small uh, farm machinery that is built for... For people to pull behind lawn tractors and glorified lawnmowers, and I just bought a, a hay rake. It's it's only four feet wide, and and it. But I make my hay in little patches in small places because 
I don't, our farm is not, does not have large scale uh, fields or patches. Our place is 25, 28 acres. Uh, uh, Mark Shepard's got 105. I believe I'm I, I just learned of his of his systems and I'm already dying to start trying to implement them step one is learn your land learn what it wants to be and I've spent the last decade walking on this property and looking at it and thinking about what it wants to be and trying to observe what it wants to be and so I'm I have a lot of foundation that that I have been able to acquire, not knowing what I was going to do with it, and now that I now that I've seen what Mark Shepard speaks of, and the use of of the savanna ecosystem, which savanna ecosystem is is uh, grassland with trees dotted around in it. It's got wooded hillsides and it's got uh, uh, it ranges slopes with with uh, Two, three, four trees to the acre, and and understory vegetation that grows beneath those trees, and all of it producing food. Uh, uh, he uh, his food system, his our carbohydrate system is based on grass seeds, and his carbohydrate system is based on tree seeds, which we call nuts, and he particularly is fond of the chestnut. Uh, which is not exactly a nut. It's a tree seed, but it's it's botanically called something other than a nut. And the reason that matters is that there are no known people who are allergic to the chestnut, whereas many tree other tree nuts people are allergic to. That's cool. I've I just ordered two chestnut seedlings to. Uh, to plant out here on a on a place where they look like they would like to grow, and I'm going to try to to build with my remaining time a farm based on the concepts that I've learned from Mark Shepard, and since I've only learned them this week, I have huge amounts left to learn, but that's good at 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 my age in my seventies. Being able to learn things is a benefit because it, you know, one of the things that people my age are afraid of is Alzheimer's, and 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 I'm of the opinion that the brain is it's another muscle, and the more you exercise it, the slower it it goes to pot. You know, I mean, it, my seventy year old, seventy two year old body is is a lot raggedier than than it was when it was forty, and it was raggedier then than it was when it was twenty. But uh, because I've used it all these years, it still functions reasonably well. And my mind still functions reasonably well. And, and if I can continue to learn, that's to my benefit. And so I've, he's, he has given me a new uh, road to study, a new, a new body of knowledge to try to, to come to understand. And uh, that's wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity. However, for my personal opinion, even permanent agriculture, even perennial crop agriculture, tree crop agriculture, and understory crop agriculture, and 
a, a food system based entirely on perennial plants, even then I believe that the scale and speed of a heat engine society will still prove to be too deadly and too brutal and too poisonous to enable us to heal our earth that way. <clears throat> As I often say, the faster you go, the more you miss. And to take this 28 acres and think of it as an opportunity to build all that I can manage with, with my eye and my mind and my donkeys as, as a complete ecosystem which produces food. I, <clears throat> pardon me, I believe that that is a better system for the planet, for other people, than for me to try to do the same thing with tractors. I have tractors. I have four tractors. I mean, I've got no room to talk about machinery here. It is as much a learning process to operate animal power as it is a learning process to farm on uh, biome and ecosystem power. And we are 10,000 years from knowing how to farm on biome and ecosystem power. And we are only about 80 years less, 60 years, from knowing how to farm with animal power here in the United States. And we have an advantage with the animal power that we don't have with the biome farming system, which is that there are still people alive doing it. So we can go to people who know how to do this and we can learn from them. The returning, as Mark Shepard is, to ecosystem farming is rediscovering principles of living systems that have been pushed aside for thousands of years and can barely be comprehended. And it's uh, the learning curve is going to be very steep. But I can tell you from having attempted a long time ago to learn to farm with horses that the learning curve on that can be fairly steep too. All life forms have their own ways and you cannot do well with life unless you can adapt yourself to their ways. I was taught when I was little that the reason there were so many humans is because we were so adaptable that we could adapt ourselves to live in all these different ecosystems. And I that's true. I'm pretty sure that's true. But somehow, about 6,000 years ago, we decided that instead of adapting ourselves to live in the ecosystems, we'd adapt all the ecosystems to, to look like we wanted them to. And you can go around the world now, and you can look at all the deserts and 
all the death and all the destruction that our adaptations of the world to suit us have caused. And you can see that that didn't work. And we did that with annual agriculture. But we also have done a wide swath of destruction with our heat engines and our power, our scale and our speed. And I believe that if we wish to live on this planet for the long haul, if we don't wish to see our race either lost or nearly lost in a massive collapse of our food system and our our other systems, that we have to make peace with the fact that we are part of this earth. We are animal humans or human animals. We evolved here for at least 140,000 years this world fed us without us killing it. And the fact that we figured out how to kill it and get it to feed us more, faster, quicker, bigger, faster, more, and ignore the fact that at the same time it's dying, that's not a solution to anything real. If we wish to live here, as long-term residents of planet Earth, we have to recreate working analogs of the systems that the Earth offered at the time that it evolved us. And if we are able to do that, then we should be able to stay here for the long run. And to me, that is an entirely biologically powered system. Listening to Mark Shepard <clears throat> also brought up, uh, in my mind, a topic that I kind of wanted to address sometime along in here, and this seems like a good time. And that's the ethics of, uh, of working animals. I think that there is, is a lot of uh, concern among good people in the United States about the ethics of working animals. Uh, if one, uh, well, when I've gone to YouTube and watched videos of, of working donkeys uh, in a third world, I've seen, and even in this country, I've seen uh, comments, uh, this is brutality, this is cruelty, this is, this is uh, uh, terrible. And there's a guy, guy, uh, runs a place he calls Anarchy Acres, and he's got two miniatures. He's got two little three-foot donkeys, and, uh, and or about three foot, and they work for him, and they pull, they pull uh, uh, small lawnmower-sized uh, uh, farm machinery for him. You know, he's, he, he works his, his, little, his little gardens with these two donkeys. It's pretty cool. He's made real nice harness. I think he, I don't know if he made it or not, but, but he has, he has real nice harness that, that is designed to uh, carefully distribute the load on their shoulders and, and not hurt them. And, and, uh, uh, guy's pretty cool. And, but his videos get these comments, you know, oh, this is cruelty. You should be using draft horses. Um, 
And I am pretty sure that all of those people are well-meaning, and I don't want to uh, speak as though I disrespect them, but I do disagree with them. I, I don't think they have probably experienced it up close uh, in the way that I have. But part of that mindset that it's cruel, inherently cruel to work animals, is rooted in uh, disgust with the kind of person who abuses animals. And that's, uh, that's a legitimate point, and it's an important point. Um, but the it's to say that we should not marry because some men abuse their wives would not be something that anyone would try to to propose everybody every decent person feels only contempt for the men who abuse their wives but they don't think that that calls the concept of of uh coupling up in in the world to to face the world together into question and you know i don't i'm not i don't care what gender your wife is and i don't care what gender the husband is people abuse one another but good people don't and people abuse animals but good people don't and if you want to be successful working animals you can't abuse them because uh, they can only work well if they're in good health. And so physical abuse, anything that, you know, you, you'll see worked animals that have wounds on their backs because they've carried such loads. But those people are losing productivity. And there's a lot of places in, in the third world where... Uh, people go in, vets go in, and they <clears throat> teach people how to treat the wounds on their on their donkeys, and they show them how if they fix their harness better and make it so it didn't wound them, uh, they could get more carry more stuff for more hours, get better results. Abused animals don't work very well, and people who abuse animals to work them uh, don't succeed at all. So that's one thing. The animals which are domesticated, and this is all of them, the work, work stock animals and, and food stock animals, animals which are domesticated to the extent that we know anything about their wild forebears, they are genetically different. They're not just a wild animal that has been captured and put to work. And the only for sure proof of this that we have, that I know of, is the donkey because the donkey's ancestors, the African wild ass, still exists, although it's threatened or I don't know if it's threatened or endangered, but I mean, it's like everything else, you know, we're just killing everything on, on earth and, and the African wild ass is one of the things we're killing. But so far we haven't finished killing them and I hope we never do. And so we know that, that any domestic donkey just pick one, you know, off the American West or anywhere out of Africa or, or my barnyard, 
and run DNA on it and run the DNA on the wild ones. And there's significant differences. Somewhere over the course of the 6,000 or so years that they've worked for us, <clears throat> with us, um, they have evolved as domesticated animals. They're no longer genetically the same as their wild forebears. And so we created them. We owe them. Uh, that's my personal opinion. And they don't work for us out of fear. They don't work for us out of punishment. They don't work for us out of abuse. They work for us out of being persuaded to work for us and trained, but none of the successful trainers use physical pain. You know, there's a bunch of jerks running around out there who use physical pain. None of the successful trainers hurt animals uh, because it doesn't work. We're, we're talking about a creature that has a mind, just like us, and it has... I, virtually everything alive, <clears throat> everything alive has some sense of fairness. Um, they work for us because they work for us. I, I'm not capable of of decoding the morality six thousand years ago of taking a wild animal and and getting it to carry our loads, but it's not as different from a dog as you might think. Nobody thinks that it's cruel of us to take our dogs to dog agility. Nobody thinks it's cruel of us to to take our dogs out hunting. They may think it's cruel of us to, to hunt, to kill. I no longer do it. But nobody thinks that, that the fact that hunters take dogs along with them is cruel to the dogs. And it's not. You know, hunting dogs love it. And uh, we, my donkey Abraham is, he's 18 years old before it ever occurred to me that I would be better off if I taught him to work. He was, he was born on my place. I've had him all his life. I own both his parents. But for 18 years, he was a pasture pet and, and, you know, we just kind of let him be. And uh, he got very lame because we'd let him be out on grass pastures and it horribly damaged his feet. We had to take him in and, you know, we started really paying close attention to him, regular farrier visits and and uh, uh, just taking better care of him than we had been. And <clears throat> I decided that I should, should teach him to work. Well, even though we were taking better care of him, we had him still out in the in the uh, pasture, loose, but he had on this this thing looks like a bucket, like a canvas bucket on his face, and it's got a little hole about the size of a fifty cent piece, and that's all they can eat through, because if they can have any more grass than that, they'll kill themselves on it. They'll kill their feet. So that just, I just, I don't know. I decided I should be working him, that he should be a work animal, and so I brought him in. And I started trying to teach him to work and still letting him be out on his 
with his bucket on his face. And it wasn't going too well. And, and uh, it, it culminated. I, I've never trained an equine before, so I'm not doing this. I'm not one who knows how to do this. You know, I'm just, I got this donkey and I have these, these things that I want to get done. And so it's a matter of you put a lead rope on him and you start leading him around and then you, you know, then you put a bag on his back and you lead him around carrying the bag. And, you know, it's just a slow process. But I was still letting him out um, when he wasn't working out on the pastures. And he wasn't too into it. I mean, you know, he was tolerating it, but he wasn't too into it. It, was, it wasn't great. It was okay. But I didn't know what I was doing, and I and I rushed the situation. I decided that I wanted to to uh, ride on a cart behind him, and I wound up getting myself hurt in the process, and uh, in a runaway. And he was afraid, and I was injured, and and this all was was going poorly. And his feet were still bad, and the farrier was still after me. She's been telling me ever since she started taking care of him that I ought to just get him up, keep him on dry lot, and feed him uh, hay year-round. And quit <clears throat> letting him be out in the green grass because his, his, his feet are badly damaged by his years on the green grass. So, so I got hurt, and everything was it just wasn't good, you know. And, and I thought, I'm doing this all wrong. I need to just bring him up here and put him on dry lot, like Sidney says, feed him hay. Like Sidney says, and just just be with him, be around him, spend a lot more time with him. Uh, I have to feed him every morning and every night, so I have to see him at least twice a day. And uh, so this was right after Thanksgiving. In fact, this was it was the day before Thanksgiving that I had to wreck and got injured, and and he ran into the barn lot. Uh, in the runaway, the reason there was a wreck was because the cart I was on was wider than the gate I, he was going to run through, and I knew that. So I got off the cart uh, unceremoniously and landed on my shoulder. He was running by 15, 18 miles an hour. He, they can run real fast if they want to. So um, he ran into the barnyard, and, and, and with the shreds of the trailer still uh, the, of the cart still attached to him, and and uh, when I could could get up and could move around, I got in there and, and I got the cart unhooked from him and I got his harness off of him and I got him, you know, brushed and settled down because he was just in a panic. He was just scared to death. He wouldn't have done this to me if he wasn't scared. See, this is a deal. Animals that you don't treat well or that you don't even know well enough to trust you are not safe to work. It's It's all... It's just like working a dog. You know, you have to. So I put him on dry lot. I started feeding him every morning and every night. For a long time, I had to feed him one-handed because my right hand's right arm wouldn't work. Um, but I did it because I was going to do this. And he started, he's always brayed a little. But he brays a lot more uh, in the in dry lot. And you know the hee haw, the, then it's it's a loud noise. It's it's pretty cool. But he doesn't do it because he's upset. He's calling me, and I go up there. I walk out the back door of the house. I yell his name, 
And I walk up there, and about the time I get to the gate, then he prays, you know, hi, you're here. And I can go over there and stand there, you know, with my arm around his neck and, and pet him on the far side and, and brush him, you know, depending on what. <clears throat> and when I want him to work, I just put his harness on him and, and we do some little thing, you know. Uh, and it's okay. It's cool. He doesn't mind. It's all just, you know, it's all just life. I mean, everybody has to work. I have to work. I'm better off working. I get bored if I don't have any work to do. And um, I go up there, you know, and I get my donkey, and I put his harness on him, and I go out and I work with him. And you see these donkeys in the third world, and you'll see them working where they go from one end of the job to the other unsupervised. You, they're they're be donkeys uh, hauling firewood up to a to a hilltop, and there's a person at the bottom of the hill and he's loading them, and there's a person at the top of the hill, and he's unloading them, and nobody's going up and down with the donkey. They're just going on their own. The guy loads them up and he turns them up and he says, "Go on, walk on," and they go up to the top of the hill, and a guy unloads them and he turns them around and he says, "Go what? Walk on," and they go back down. These animals are not abused. I mean. I'm not exactly sure what the relationship is, but it's no worse than just strictly business and we're getting along just fine. And there's a, a video that I'm particularly fond of on YouTube. Uh, if you look up uh, uh, Donkey Stairs, it's about a four and a half minute one, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's just, it's, it's a, there's, it's a construction project in some big third world city. And I mean, I'm talking, you know, high rise and this, we're, this, we're not in the mud hut world here. And at the bottom of the, of the building on the ground, there are men who are putting uh, building materials, concrete and sand and, and cement and, and all the things you need to build a building. This is a, it's a, a, concrete cinder block building or a stone building that they're building and they uh they're putting it in big baskets they're on the back of regular sized donkeys and the donkeys aren't tied up while they do this the donkeys are just standing there in fact you know one of them standing there getting loaded and there's another one standing beside him waiting his turn nobody's holding them nobody's supervising nobody's doing anything and the guy's loading the stuff he's got all the sand on the back of the donkey and and they get three or four of them ready, and, and there's this young guy, and he goes up and down the stairs with them. So they got three or four donkeys, I'm not sure exactly how many, that are going up and down the stairs, and it's one young guy, and he's he's just big and studly. He's got, you know, big shoulders and a, and a skinny waist. He's good looking. And he walks the donkeys up to the top of the building, and he unloads everything. He takes, he unloads the uh, uh They've they've got the the sand and the cement, and the and the aggregate in big bag baskets that are on these donkeys' backs, and then the baskets are are three times as wide as the donkey. You know, there's one donkey width sticking off on the left, and there's one donkey width on top of the donkey, and there's one donkey width sticking off to the right, and it's full of of sand or something. It's heavy. I mean, it's hundreds of pounds. And uh, this is about a six or hundred and fifty or seven hundred pound donkey, probably. 
and uh, maybe not quite that much. Maybe, yeah, six fifty probably. And they've walked up and down. They, the, this one guy, and he walks them up the stairs. And then when they get to the top of the stairs, he unloads all the stuff off of them in the place where the work's going to be done. And they turn around and go back down the stairs. And this is what they do all day. It's just a job. It's, and <clears throat> they'll work all day. They'll work eight hours. And nobody's beating on them. Nobody's abusing them. These donkeys are a valuable resource. This company relies on them to get buildings built. And sometime, someplace during the, the middle of the video, you can see the, the boss shows up, you know, and he's an older guy with white hair, and and uh, and he talks to the workmen some. And you can tell this is the boss, you know. This is all just business. This is real-life business. And nobody's hurting the animals. And the animals are just working. They don't, they, this is what they do. Nobody's going to hurt them because they're valuable. If one of them falls down dead, the guy loses hundreds of dollars. If one of them pulls up lame and can't work, he loses money, you know. And if they're all kept in good health and in good physical shape, <clears throat> fed enough, warmed regularly, their hooves are all trimmed, you can just see these donkeys. they got pictures of their feet going up the stairs. And their feet are just perfect. You know, they're trimmed just perfect. They uh, And... Uh, it, it, it is not unethical to to ask this of an animal unless it's unethical for us to ask one another to work because we are no more real than they are we are no less real than they are we i with my donkey abe i provide he was born on my property i provide everything he's ever eaten i uh brush him i care for him and in return he hauls the food that he eats and he hauls the manure that he produces and he takes care of his share of uh of living this life together <clears throat> and he doesn't mind it He's, he welcomes me he calls to me when he sees me he welcomes me he comes over to me he stands he likes to be petted he likes to be brushed and I have no evidence whatsoever that he doesn't like to work. I can't prove that he does. I can't read a donkey's mind. But I know that I can take him out here by the barn and and, and have him stand while I load up a slid full of lumber. And he's not tied up. He's Nothing is keeping him from walking away or running away except the fact that he knows that if he walks away or runs away, I'll go over there and get him, and I'll take his lead rope, and I'll lead him back to where we already were, and I'll put him there, and I'll say, stand there, and I'll go back to work. And if I have to do this three or four times, I'll do it three or four times. And It's just a learning process. I don't go over there and beat on him. I just take his lead rope and lead him back where he was, go back to work. He'll stand now more often than not. He'll just stand wherever I ask him to stand. And and I was loading this lumber, and he's got this sled. It's made out of a, a piece of old beat-up corrugated steel and, and some two-by-fours. And he's standing there in a harness, and he's hooked to the sled, and I'm throwing these these boards out of the barn onto the sled, and they're going bang, clang, bong, wham. And his... His ears aren't even moving. He's not. He looks back occasionally to see what I'm doing, but it's just, it's fine. 
He's cool with it. He knows I'm not going to hurt him. You know, those big noises aren't a threat because it, I'm just back there working. And um, he's a little bit lame because of his foot damage and he can't pull too much. But I don't have him pull any more weight than I can pull. The only difference is I pull it 50 or 100 feet and I'd be winded. And he can pull it 300 feet six or eight times in a row. And so we're not talking, you know, abuse, but he's doing, he's, he's very valuable to me. The things I do with him, if, if I couldn't do them with him, I'd have to do them with a, with a tractor or a truck or something. And it would burn gasoline. It would cost me money. It would make noise. It would pollute the air. Uh, and, and it would be inconvenient because I'd have to get in it and drive it and get out of it and work and get in it and drive it and get out of it and work. And with Abe, I can just walk over to him, you know, when, if I'm loading junk on a sled and then I'm going to move it someplace else and unload it, I just walk over to him and take his lead rope and say, you know, walk on. And we go to the other end where the other, where the thing needs to be unloaded and, and unload it. Um, it's, it's not, the questions of ethics of working animals go with the fact that under our industrial system, our high-speed, high-energy, large-scale, you hear me say it all the time, uh, heat engine system, we just, <clears throat> that people who, the deeper something is in that system, the more it wants to drive everything like a machine. And so horses drop dead at racetracks. And horses drop dead in in uh, uh, downtown, you know, on a on a cart. Although everything dies, I mean, horses are alive, you know, and donkeys are alive, and and so it's it is not proof that the horse was being abused because he dropped dead between the shafts of the cart, you know, I. I hope to be out there someplace on this farm working when I die and to just die all at once and just drop dead between the shafts of the cart. Um, if the animal was treated well and had a good life, then it was his time and he had to die. And everybody's time comes. Mine will, yours will. But the animals at the racetrack that are dying, that's not how that is. They're drugged. Their they're machines are treated like machines. But they're not worked by somebody who wants to have a working relationship for years. You know, I wanna, I want to work this animal's... You know, I've got work to do tomorrow. I've got work to do the next day. I don't have any big money on it. There's no big exciting... There's no thrilling parts to it. You know, like I'm a racehorse owner and I might make a million dollars on my racehorse. I'm not, I'm not going to make any money on my donkey. But I'm going to get things done that I need to get done. And I'm not going to hurt him. And I'm pretty confident he's not going to hurt me again either. Because he only hurt me because he was scared. And I know better now how to not how not to scare him. So, I think that, that uh, an ethical human race can ethically work uh, work stock, donkeys, horses, cattle. Uh, it's just that, that we need to make peace with and rejoin 
the world on which we live, we can't work well with things that we think are our slaves, but we can definitely work well with things that we think are our partners. I appreciate you coming along with me for today's conversation, and I'll be back on another day. Thank you.